There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, this is Tyler Jones, and you're listening to The Element Podcast. What's happening, all my woods people? The Whitetail Weatherman here, along with KC. What's going on, dude? Uh, well, I found the stud to your GoPro, but you have lost your actual GoPro. You talking about me? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> um, man, it was cold this morning. It Speaking was. of Whitetail Weatherman, and yep. we'll uh, let you do this report. It's officially. Um, I appreciate that. It's officially not uh, standard deer season where we live, which is a sad, sad thing for us. But there's still a muzzleloader season. I'm going to try my hand at that. I'm going to embrace it if I can ever make my muzzleloader hit something. Uh, I'm not going to go into the, I'm not going to go hunting, man, if I can't feel decent about the way that things Have shoot. Have you shot it t- this year? I've shot it like 15 times. This year? Yes. And it's not hitting like anything. Well, I'm still like... Um, Cutting off the lowest common denominator on things. First of all, it's got a Barska scope on it, uh, which is not good. <laughs> I agree, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about taking that off and just <clears throat> open-sighting it. But I've kind of got it hitting a little bit. Um, I've also changed powders. I've changed loads. I've changed bullets. I think yeah. I've got one that's shooting pretty good it's right good. now. But I still think I need to take that scope off. So uh, there's that. I might, I might actually go do that after I leave here. Go shoot that thing open sight and just try to hit something. But I forgot my tool. Oh, my, oh while I'm with you, I'm going to borrow your Allen tool to take the scope off. Right we're gonna, here. We're going to do that. <clears throat> right so here. Tyler and I might kill another deer. Guess what, guys? Y'all can go kill a deer in the rut right now. In Did you rut? know that? In the rut? In the rut? What? What? what rut? In the rut? Did you say that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you get that reference, you're a friend of mine. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh. so for real, you can go kill a deer in the rut. And uh, today on the show, we've got Lindsey Thomas Jr., a, a, a tenured guest for, for uh, the Element Podcast. 
uh, to talk all about that deep south rut because there are a lot of states that you can travel to right now and still go hunt deer. Deer season's not over for yeah. a big majority of our listeners, for sure. Yeah. And Dude, a- <clears throat> I haven't shot a deer since November 21st. So, like, I would like, I've hunted a lot since then. Mm-hmm. I would like to shoot one. You, know you what should. I mean? I should. We should go somewhere. Man. <laughs> we just might. We just might. You know what's real cool is that we're sitting here uh, in Texas talking about muzzleloader, and <laughs> there, it's it, it's real cool that it is it is muzzleloader only, mm-hmm. not like cool. muzzleloader or lesser weapon. Yeah. It gives you a, a good reason to have to go spend another four hundred dollars. That's what it is. <laughs> Dude, that's what it is. Like it's literally legislated that way because some muzzleloader company or whatever mm-hmm. association had a lobbyist came in and said, "Hey, Texas, we want you to open up this muzzleloader only season. Don't let bow hunters hunt because they'll just keep bow hunting instead. Make them buy a muzzleloader." Yeah, exactly. And I I know that there is a very small population of individuals that are diehard. Like Hawkins muzzleloader shooters, mm-hmm. but it's not like I understand that they want to be able to hunt with their weapon, and they should be able to, just like we can hunt with our bows. But it's not like me being in the woods on my private property with my bow and arrow is going to have any effect on their ability to go hunt with their muzzleloader. No, I'm okay with there being a muzzleloader season, but it should be muzzleloader or lesser weapon. Yeah. You know, let's take the high-powered rifles out of the woods just sure. for a little while, give the deer a break or whatever, but... Put the curveball shooters in the woods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's a Hawkins muzzleloader? Is that like a traditional, like a musket or whatever? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's like a... That'd be cool. If I think I know what I'm talking about, which I don't, uh, <laughs> uh, a Hawkins... Uh, muzzleloader is just going to be like what you think of as a muzzleloader. So you're going to have like a wad, you put powder in, then you put a wad and you put a ball in. And like a flintlock or whatever? Well, a flintlock's going to actually have the hammer. flint with a hammer and a little bowl of gunpowder to oh. ignite. So a Hawkins would just be taking that system. Is it a breakover still? Uh-huh. No. It's a, everything goes through the muzzle, but you just take that flint system away and you put a little percussion cap right there, um, and that cap sends a spark in. Gotcha. Stuff. So I mean, it's kind of what you think of as a traditional muzzle. It shoots a musket though, like a ball. A ball. Uh, yeah, I think you might be able to do conicals out of them. I don't really know, oh. but huh. yeah, interesting. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I would love to do it, but I'm not going to buy one. You had one uh, that you had for some time. Yeah. yeah. So, and it just. Uh, Maybe less accurate than your bow, you think? I I feel a lot more confident with my bow than I do, I do the muzzleloader for sure. Um, which is, I mean, that's a sad thing, man. Like, I'm not, I don't know. I'm probably, unless things get better, I'm not going to shoot anything over 20 yards with this thing, which is pretty tough. <laughs> Dude, you have to get close. I know, I know. It's just bow hunting with a gun, pretty much. Pretty much, yep. yeah. Just a real loud, smoky... <laughs> Bow is what it is. Smoke bow. That's cool. Well, I uh, I said this earlier. I hadn't shot a deer since November twenty first, but uh, we have hunted a lot and had a lot of encounters. But uh, with all that said, we have now released the Iowa buck film or video, whatever you want to call it, um, where I killed on public land in Iowa. 
<laughs> it's been well received. That's, that's a preview. Right yeah, there. go watch it. It's cool, man. <laughs> it's cool for sure. People like uh, like what they heard in it and what they saw. Uh, which makes me feel good because I spent a considerable amount of time just adding in all kinds of different angles with the GoPro and uh, map stuff as Dude, well. Dude, the map stuff is cool. You like it? Yes, I like it a lot. <clears throat> I'm trying to – I didn't – I got so excited after I, I shot that I would do these clips and they were like really short. So I would say something and then cut it off, stop recording real quick. And I'm like, I wish I had recorded some dead space on the end of that so I could just put some map in there on top of it. So the map – clips are kind of short at certain times but uh definitely have had like several people say that they thought it was good it helps them to visualize what we we're doing and that kind of thing and i'm trying to listen to people that are, in, are watching the youtube videos i mean there was another guy that said hey you should put dates on these because uh, it's kind of hard to keep up with sometimes uh even though pretty much everything we're doing is chronological but um he said also your kids will probably want to watch this one day and, you know, it'll help them to understand what was going on and everything. And I thought, man, that's a good idea. So I started trying to put dates in there on these, um, for the most part. So yeah, uh, now we're on to Kansas, the next Kansas series. And there are two, the two biggest deer that we encounter all year, I think are in this next series. Um, the biggest deer you've ever seen on the hoof is basically going to be the next video released. Man, oh man. So it's getting crazy. Uh, so keep up with it. Subscribe to YouTube, and that'll help you to see um, when we release videos and keep and keep better uh, in touch with how our season went. Um, just now getting around to a lot of that. Unfortunately, I have to go back to editing some wedding videos soon, and I'm like, ooh. When you've been editing hunting stuff, like the last thing you want to do is go do a wedding video you know yeah just well, so uninspired uh would you rather go hang osb because that's what i have to go back to doing mm, probably not <laughs> okay. probably not i don't know some days i'm like man it's good weather it'd be good to work outside instead of in this cave you know yeah, but yeah i hear you um yeah but overall uh i'm just gonna probably eat and get soft whatever we can there <laughs> that's why we're trying to scramble find ways to go hunt somewhere else right now because uh, we don't want to go back to real world <laughs> stuff completely so there's yeah. that but uh it is what it is um uh, i've been doing a little fishing lately a little boat riding actually yeah those are good um, and uh so we're looking i'm pretty i'm looking forward to fishing season more than i have in a mm. long time right now probably because my dad got a boat so it makes it easier but yeah Yep. I think you might see Tyler and I doing some bass fishing this spring. For sure. Yeah. For sure, man. That's what I want to do. I'm, I would like to go fishing today or tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it off, but it's, a, it's, we've had, like, it's been cold in the mornings, like you said earlier, but we've had some, uh, pretty good afternoon weather, man. Yeah. Warming um, trends. Very warm. So. What are you going to do? What am I going to do mm -hmm. as far as fishing goes? If you wanted to go catch a bass on an afternoon right now, what would you do? I would, I'm not trying to go catch a bass probably at this time of year. If I'm going out, I'm going to try to catch a big bass. So I'm going to fish differently than mm -hmm. if I was trying to catch a bass probably. And that being said, I'm probably flipping a jig near a creek, a creek bend uh, somewhere in probably six to uh, 15 foot of water. Yeah, somewhere. Just following a creek, flipping jig on big, huge stumps. So, and I think, I think fish tend to relay overall on the shady side of the stump, mm -hmm. but uh, I know this time of year, if the water's pretty cold, they might get in the sun. So. Water's pretty stained right now, too. Yeah, it's, it has been that way for, like, the whole year, it seems yeah. like, it's because we don't have grass anymore. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, I've been talking about it a lot, man. There's a lot, 
a lot of fishing that's going to happen, I think, this year. Um, I need more fillets, you know. I have I've only eaten fish a few times in the last year or so, and it's because I don't have a ton of fillets. I'm gonna give you a challenge. You ready? I love challenges. You're gonna the first over you catch this year, you're gonna fillet it. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be hard, but it would be nice to have a big old fillet. It'd be so hard. Yeah, I can't tell you the last nine pound bass I killed on purpose. Was there one ever? I don't think so. I don't think ever for me either. I mean, there's never been a, a fish over a bass over uh, 16 inches, you know, because of the slot that I've killed in eight. Yeah. So, yeah. Killed some catfish that were that big. Oh, guarantee sure. you that. <laughs> <laughs> guarantee you that. I'll take a crappie that's 24 inches too. Oh, Anytime wow. it wants that, to buy it, you know cool. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I would just not ever eat it. I would just put it in the freezer and look at it every day and mm-hmm. just be like, oh, that fillet is awesome. Do you think about this? Um, technically you could go to parts of Florida and go on a rut hunt and a bass spawn fishing Mm. trip all at the same time. Mm. Can you imagine that? I can't, man. But if that sounds weird to you, then you're going to like what's (laughs) coming up. This is the podcast for you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We're going to like what's coming up. We got Lindsey Thomas Jr. and he's going to give us the lowdown. I guess uh, we've talked enough about fishing for our deer hunting audience. Um, So we'll just get to Lindsey then. All right. So now on the phone, we've got Lindsey Thomas Jr. of the QDMA. And when I went to gather the experts um, on the topic of deep south deer ruts, I thought there would be no better people to inquire with in the QDMA. So I hit... uh, LTJ up and I was like hey you know who are the experts and he was like you know lo and behold he was like uh you're talking to him so (laughs) I was like okay cool so thanks for doing this Lindsay um it it really we really do appreciate it man and and it's nice to have kind of a uh kind of a person who knows a lot about these things uh as opposed to talking to you know sometimes you talk to a biologist about stuff like this and uh, you come away having more questions than what you actually had in the beginning so i think uh being that you could probably uh turn this into something that we can understand you're a good guy to talk to um your dad shot a tank of a deer this year man yeah he did yeah thanks he uh he got a good buck on on our family land in southeast georgia in, uh, on October 26, which is right in the peak of breeding in coastal Georgia. So I know we'll get into, you know, questions about that. Like, mm-hmm. why is our, our rut there in late October? But, uh, yeah, he did get a nice buck for our area. Probably going to end up being one of the uh, top ten bucks in the county when we get it officially measured. Oh, so, wow. Awesome, man. Yeah. How is Grace Acres these days? <laughs> Everything's doing good. Good. Uh, you know, happy to have gotten that buck. Uh, my brother-in-law killed his first buck ever on the farm this year. He was a, a small, or sort of a two-and-a-half-year-old, eight-pointer, smaller buck, but his first deer ever, and we were, you know, thrilled about that. He was thrilled with that buck. So, you know, it just makes a great story and example for me to talk about that, you know, doing QDM and, and producing more adult bucks does not mean you can't still shoot some younger deer, and sure. you know, uh, now and then, and, and for people that are new to hunting or never killed a buck before, never killed a, a yearling, never killed a two-and-a-half-year-old, whatever it is, you know, it, you don't have to have this stringent set of rules. So we had a very good season. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. awesome, man. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that deer falls right in line with the QDMA uh, kind of suggestion, right? Two-and-a-half and older, and that kind of what y'all encourage people to, to go for? 
what we say is, you know, the starting point is try to protect most of your yearlings. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, if um, if you've never killed a two and a half year old, that's kind of where you ought to start. Yeah. You don't you don't walk into uh, trying to start QDM and say, I'm going to wait till five and a half. You know, if nobody's been protecting yearling bucks in that area, there might not. It might take you four years to grow a five and a half year old. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you need to you need to take it stair step and um, start small and, and work your way up. Sure. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, even if you're protecting most of your yearling bucks, your one and a half year olds, that's the most vulnerable, um, you know, innocent, unaware deer out there among bucks. Mm-hmm. And they're the they're usually the first to go down. So if you're protecting most of them and getting them to two and a half, you're very quickly going to build your numbers of adult bucks. You're not going to come in there and kill all the two and a half year olds after that. In other mm-hmm. words, there more are going to be trickling through to the older ages. So it starts working really quick. Mm-hmm. What, what's the big project you got lined up out there this year? Well, we got a we got burning season coming up. We always do a little bit of fire every year. Mm-hmm. Um, another project I'm going to be jumping on real quick. We've 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 got an outbreak of what's called Japanese climbing fern. And it's a bad invasive plant. Um, it spreads by spores. And Ooh. these spores it puts out in October. And these things cling to anything, an ATV, your boots, a deer, whatever, a turkey, and get transported that way to other areas. So it's, this is bad stuff. And it, it, it just climbs all over everything and kills native forage and, and vegetation that's beneficial and uh, gets transported on logging equipment from area to area. Well, we've got it. And uh, we've got to jump on it quick and get that under control. So, unfortunately, a lot of times maintaining good deer habitat is, is you know, getting rid of stuff like that. And that's one of the projects we got coming up. Sure. That sounds, uh, sounds like you got your hands full there for sure. So, we're talking the deep south rut today. And there's a lot probably to be said about this. So, I think we'll jump into it. And uh, with that, um, just kind of break down um, general and briefly uh, you know, what are the factors that determine the rut in most of the country where you would normally see rut action happening? Well, the bottom line, Tyler, you got to remember is think of, of deer breeding in terms of species survival. Mm-hmm. And it really all comes down to what is the best time of year for a fawn to hit the ground? Best for the doe and her having adequate nutrition because the last two months, last month or two months of, of pregnancy for a doe are the most intensive in terms of draining her nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she goes into nursing. And so the demands grow. you got, you know, the fawn is, 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 is using the milk and then the fawn will be weaning. But you've also, you know, on forage, but you've also got the question of having good cover to protect the fawn and, and hide it from predators. And so the, any question for any deer population is, What's the best time of year to put fawns on the ground so that they have a great chance of surviving and thriving? That's okay. what it's all about. So in the north, you know, as you get into the colder climates, what happens is it, it just works out to be November. There's nothing special about November for deer to breed other than the fact that that's the best time so that six months to seven months later when fawns are born, that forage and climate and everything else is, is ideal for the doe and the fawn to have healthy nutrition, to survive predators, but also so that the fawn has enough time to gain enough size before winter comes around again, or else that fawn will not survive the following winter. 
So that is a crucial timing factor. And that is why most ruts, you know, from the, the middle United States and north are a very tight window in November to hit that timing uh, in the spring. Mm-hmm. And as you move south, that factor becomes less and less important, that climate factor. And when you get down here in, in the southern states, when you get into Mexico, and when you get into even Central America where there are whitetails, um, it is less and less important for the fawn to hit the dirt at a certain time. And therefore, deer can breed across a wider window. They can breed earlier. Or even as you get into Central and South America, they can pretty much breed year-round mm-hmm. because they can. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what time of year the, the fawn hits, hits the ground. So that's the primary thing that determines historically why whitetails breed when they do in any given region. It is all about fawn survival. Gotcha. Yeah, so that makes sense. Um, th- so I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but it kind of brings <laughs> brings this to my attention is like across – wildlife in general are are species that tend to inhabit uh extreme regions away from the equator that way do they have tighter windows for breeding as opposed to those around the equator that i don't really know tyler i'm Mm. a deer dude i I just thought you might know you're you're a knowledgeable guy you know (laughs) yeah well Um, maybe we can get a i'm sure i'm sure there's other examples uh but you know deer have um unique requirements as far as Having needing cover to hide from from fawn predators, needing the forage for the fawn to wean on, needing the forage for the doe, you know she doesn't need to be trying to to uh, drop a fawn and nurse it in winter when there's no forage, mm-hmm. um, and that fawn doesn't need to be you know walking around with spots in January. It's not going to survive. It's not going to be big enough to survive. So those are unique requirements. Now the requirements change in some specific locations. Florida is one of these we can get into, and, and even mm-hmm. in the Mississippi River area, we that you get some of this. But in, in the Everglades of Florida, uh, deer breed at a different time because spring is a traditional flood season, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't want to be dropping farms in water. Mm-hmm. So right. they breed much uh, actually earlier. They're breeding uh, way early mm-hmm. so that farms are, you know, big enough by the time the spring flood season comes around that they can cope with that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not always just temperature and climate. Things like flooding and other local factors can affect ultimately what's the best time for a fawn to be on the ground. Sure, yeah. So so since we're on Florida, let's talk about it, man. This, this is one of the most perplexing states out there as far as the deer rut goes. I looked at a map yesterday in preparation for, for this conversation, and I was blown away, like county by county, Things vary so much there. Uh, talk yep. talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you probably saw the map that the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission produced here just a year or two ago uh, based on some research they did, uh, gathering data from over almost a 1,000 does across the state. And the way they did this is the way most other states do it and the way almost any rut map worth anything was produced. And that is in the late hunting season when does are harvested, um, many times they will have a fetus inside them. And you can, you know, that's, that's from that doe having just been recently bred during the rut. And you can take that fetus and measure it with a ruler uh, that will tell you when that fetus was conceived. And if you get enough data, uh, you know, measuring one fetus like that and having one date, that doesn't tell you when the rut was. Mm-hmm. Because 
you know, breeding dates scatter out in kind of a bell curve. You have a peak, but you have some that are early, you have some that are late, et cetera. So you need a bunch of numbers. So a thousand does they gather data on around the state, and that's how they came up with that map. Well, um, yeah, ultimately what you see, if you go to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission website uh, and go to their deer information page and, and look for the rut map, you'll see everything from February, you know, January and February rut peak in the panhandle uh, near Alabama, all the way down to July and August in, uh, in South Florida and in the Everglades uh, with, yeah, kind of a weird uh, intergrade across the whole state in between those two extremes. And what they found in that data they collected was pretty amazing uh, when, when they reported on this. Literally May, the month of May, was the only month of the year they did not find evidence that a doe had been bred. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, in July, in July, there's bucks working scrapes and chasing does in South Florida. Oh, that's um, nuts. You know, and into August, September, and then you get some of the traditional you know, November in the middle of the state and other pockets. And then it begins to flow late December, January and into February up into the panhandle. So, yeah, I think it literally is the single state in the nation with the broadest range of, of rut peaks mm -hmm. across the calendar. With that, do they have a broad range of uh, like antler growth dates? Um I don't think, you know, that's a good question. I've, I've never seen data on that, although I know that uh, just this past year, a QDMA member sent me a, a trail camera picture of a buck um, in central, south central Florida, just on the northern edge of the Everglades. And I think the picture was like July 30th, and he was standing there in hard antler. Mm. Um, so clearly, yeah, the, the testosterone cycle is going to work a little differently there. If those are coming into estrus, that... You know, those pheromones are going to be keying those bucks up and, and triggering them to go into the cycle themselves so they can be prepared to, to breed. And that's going to also affect the, the antler growth cycle. So that's a good question. Um, I'm not real sure about that, <laughs> except that I do know that, that in the South Florida, it does appear to me that bucks are, you know, shedding velvet and coming into hard antler a little earlier than, than, than normal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's just you think like common sense would tell you if uh – you know, May's the only month that those aren't getting bred. That means that in, in June, there's somebody probably hard-horned out there somewhere, uh, you know, chasing a doe around. Now, now, I understand they have everything it takes all year long to make it happen, but like you are saying, you know, the testosterone levels have to be there to kind of uh, push them into that. So along with that, That's you know, correct. Now, yeah. the, what the scientists have found is you can make a buck gear up for breeding any time of year, even when he doesn't have antlers. Uh, by introducing those pheromones that come from a doe. So mm -hmm. if a doe is, you know, it doesn't matter. And again, you got to remember, if May was the only one month there was no breeding, that doesn't mean there's a whole bunch of does being bred sure. in June or, or April. Mm -hmm. There were some. So this is like a, a shotgun pattern where you got, you know, a few shots scattered out on the periphery. And that's, that's what these other times of year are. Mm -hmm. um, so in June, when there's, you know, a handful, a small handful of does in a certain area coming into estrus, all it takes is one doe coming into estrus and a buck encountering those pheromones for him to be able to gear up and provide her the service she needs. Mm -hmm, um, right. And then, and then, you know, when that goes away, he's, you know, that's not going to trigger him to grow antlers, but he can breed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. Whenever they did this survey, um, from what I understand, yearling does in a very healthy deer population can be ready to, to breed that fall, right? Uh, so if, uh, 
there's yeah. enough forage and everything. You can have a nine-month-old doe breeding or a six. Fawn. Fawn. Yeah, not, yeah. A, not a yearling, Sorry. but a fawn. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, six six to nine-month-old fawn. If she achieves uh, has adequate nutrition to achieve a certain body size threshold, and mm-hmm. it varies by region because obviously in the north, you know, deer tend to be bigger on average. It takes it's a different weight than it would be, say, in Georgia for a fawn to come into estrus. But if they reach that threshold weight, they'll come into their first estrus, and it tends to be later. Uh, that's why many times in areas where, you know, with a typical November rut, many times people will say they witness rut activity in December, mid-December. A lot of times what that is, that, that late or second rut, mm-hmm. is fawns, uh, healthy fawns coming into estrus. Yes. So whenever they're taking this data on you know, measuring fetuses on harvested does in Florida, uh, are they taking that in consideration? Are they harvesting only mature does? Or is part of that because there are, you know, young-of-the-year does uh, being bred? And so that's what's really pushing out those outliers. That's that's a good question. I don't know if they collected age data with the doe harvest. This would have been, you know, because a lot of this was on public land and private land. Mm-hmm. So it's it's any, any legal doe harvest by a hunter that they were able to collect that. Gotcha. Uh, that breeding data from. So, it, yeah, it would have included any fawns that came into estrus. I don't know if they collected age data so that they could look at that. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. Yeah, cool. Let me ask you this. One of the one of the more rare and small deer uh, in the U.S. would be the key deer, as far as I understand. What's, uh, what's special about them? What makes them different? And also talk about their rut, if you know anything about it. You know, I... Tyler, I don't know what their rut is. I'm going to assume because they're they're down in that southern tip of Florida where we know it has followed that traditional pattern of the further south you are, the the either the wider range your rut is or the earlier it is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume they're, you know, kind of like that Everglades, Everglades whitetails where they're breeding in summer, breeding in, in July, August. But, mm-hmm. but I might be wrong. I'm, I'm, I haven't really zoomed in on the key deer and looked at their rut. Yeah. You know. We know they're a subspecies of whitetails. You know, they are whitetails, but they have been isolated geographically long enough uh, out there on those islands that they are a unique subspecies. Um, they have very small body sizes, we know, um, to adapt to that climate, uh, to adapt to nutritional resources available on those islands. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, when I look at something like this, um, I can see how... We, we love animals, and we like plants, native vegetation, these kind of things, but there's only so much you can know, and um, so, like, for us, we're also, and I know you are as well, um, a hunter, and so, since you, you know, you're not really, like, going to ever probably be able to kill an, a key deer, you're probably not, like, tuned in to exactly what's going on, but you know a little bit, you know, and that's kind of how I feel about a lot of this, and I'm glad that you know a lot more than we do uh, and can talk to well, it, but. And let me say this, Tyler. You talked about how you know I'm an expert on this. I don't. I wouldn't say I'm an expert on this. I'm a. I'm a journalist. I'm not a biologist, and I've just spent a lot of years talking to the biologists and learning from them. You know, asking them questions about this stuff because it fascinates me, mm-hmm. and trying to translate that into as a deer hunter, translate that into a language that I understand and that that is practical for me to apply to my deer hunting and deer management. Right. So then, as a writer, I share that with others. That's. That's really where how I've come to know what I know is uh, getting to know the ex- the true experts, the uh-huh. biologists that have done this science. Yeah, and it makes you a good person to talk to because 
excluding uh, a passion for fake news, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, if you're ready, ready to report, you know, real findings as a journalist, you you can compile a ton of information and come out with like the median, you know, as opposed to someone who has a personal agenda, maybe, um, or at least just their their own very um, hard founded beliefs on what they think, you know, you can, you can, uh, take what it takes and, you know, through, uh, I guess the, what do they call it? Something, you know, editor's choice or whatever. You can kind of just, uh, make it where it's digestible for most people and, and, you know, exclude or kind of meld together the, uh, all the doctoral language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah all the crazy stuff that people talk about out there. So, yeah, I mean that's 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 what QDMA has always done. We've been we're a fact-based organization, a science-based organization, uh, taking the science behind this stuff, and uh, that's reliable information, and supplying it to deer hunters in ways that they can apply and use uh, to learn these animals that we all love. Yeah. So on that note, this has nothing to do with southern rut, but you've used the term subspecies quite a few times. Are you Lindsey Thomas Jr. a grouper? or a divider when it comes to speciation? <laughs> <laughs> you like that one, don't you? <laughs> um, I'm, I don't know exactly what you're referring so, to there. I've seen... Marlins. <laughs> what? That's what you're talking about, right? What? We've in had the, the Marlin debate before. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> in, the, in the parlance of our times? Yeah, so... I've seen, you know, different articles, maps, whatever, uh, probably not associated with QDMA, I don't know, uh, where there's up to 27 subspecies of whitetails, and I think that's got to be baloney, but you also can't just call them all the one exact same thing, right? So where do you fall in that scale? Um, I would say that you're never, short of some severe geographic boundary mm-hmm. or barrier, you're not ever going to really see a hard line between these groups it's mm-hmm. more much more subtle just like we know that you know you got the borealis subspecies of the north and you got the uh the texas sub uh, whitetail subspecies and you got you know subspecies over here in, in the virginia whitetail where i am but the if you try to find the line between these between me and you and where that deer changes from one or the other you'll never find it because it it is so subtle across the miles between me and you you know as those deer gradually interchange and are interbreeding with each other, um, there's no clear dividing line. Now, mm-hmm. you take the, the Columbia whitetail. These are deer in the Columbia River Basin of Oregon um, and Washington State in that area. Uh, there's a very clear geographic boundary, the Cascade Mountains, that prevent those deer from interbreeding with the whitetails of eastern Washington State. Um, so it is very clearly a subspecies. The key deer, I think, is very keely, clearly a subspecies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got deer on Georgia's coastal islands, uh, the blackbeard deer and some others that are sometimes counted as <laughs> subspecies. But if you picked up a deer off Blackbeard Island on the Georgia coast and, and took it two counties inland to Grace Acres in Wayne County, Georgia, and, and turned it out, you know, it can breed with those whitetails. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it really, what it, in my opinion, it takes a very hard geographic boundary to truly say, you know, that this is a very unique subspecies. Now, again, that's, you take a big 
Minnesota Borealis whitetail, that's clearly a different animal than a South Georgia whitetail. Yeah. You, next, yeah. you know, put them next to each other, there's no mistaking them. Tyler, yeah. like, uh, Tyler and I like a joke about that. Like, <laughs> we'll see a two-year-old in Kansas, we're like, dude, that deer would whoop every buck we have back home. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But, yeah. The, but the question becomes, between Georgia and Minnesota, where's the line where one changes to the other you're not going to find it yeah. it's just you know it is those are subtle changes sure yeah so speaking of georgia let's move up there a little bit and talk about uh the deer of georgia first of all i would like to uh learn a little more about the blackbeard deer <laughs> can you hunt those because i just want to say i've shot a blackbeard deer you know what i mean yeah and hey by the way that's on blackbeard island which is a national wildlife refuge and uh, there's no bridge to it. You can bow hunt it. Uh, oh, there are refuge God. hunts. And, yeah, y'all will look into doing that. Um, you can uh, boat over, get over there, camp out in some of the you know beautiful, pristine, uh, coastal maritime forests and bow hunt those whitetails and kill you a blackbeard deer. So, Boy, that's cool. Uh, Man, might have to cut yeah. this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So uh, it sounds like that that's pretty close to where you guys uh, hunt as well. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Yep, right so, there on the Georgia coast. Okay, so so you you spoke to an October, late October, right there. What's the what's the reasoning for that? When you look at going back to what I said about how as you go from north to south, uh, the breeding tends to move earlier, uh, so that in coastal Georgia and Florida, most of anyway northern Florida, you around the Gulf Coast too, you kind of used to see historically a late October, mid-October rut. Um, and again, it's because by the time you get down this deep in the South, spring is coming at a different time than it is in the North. Um, you know, our spring is earlier, so the deer need to be breeding earlier to put thorns on the dirt to coincide with the primary, uh, the prime high-quality forage of spring. Mm -hmm. uh, so as you get into coastal Georgia and southern Georgia, it's, it's uh, uh, particularly on the coast, it is an October rut. Now you get out on those islands and it's a little bit earlier, it's more mid-October, and then it just kind of fades inland toward the late October up into early November as you get up into middle Georgia. And, you know, you see remnants of that throughout the Gulf Coast uh, into, I think, even coastal Texas. You guys have a uh, late October rut, if I'm not mistaken. There is um, there is one, and yeah, then there's, there's a early one, like September uh, as well, I believe, there in Texas, yeah. so. That's that's cool. So what's the what's the high quality forage uh, that shows up around your area uh, in the spring? Well, it's just everything. Uh, all of the native plants, and of course, non-native ones too, that deer will eat, um, that are greening up at that time. Sure. Um, so it's it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. not, again, like I said, not only important for the doe, who is you know in that last month of pregnancy that's so intensive, but then producing milk after that, but also for the fawn to eventually wean off a few weeks later on the forage, you know, being the time of year when all of that is producing new growth, but also it's at highest quality. When mm -hmm. you get into late summer, as we all know, a lot of native and natural forages are maturing, are going to seed, they're grassy, they're leafy, they're tough, they're getting older, the quality has dropped, uh, digestibility is lower, uh, and the nutritional quality is, is lower. So, um, you know, time of year on that is critical for all of those forages. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I believe you're riding there with G-Man, and I believe he has <laughs> uh, he has spent some time hunting uh, maybe some 
mountainous country in the last couple of years in Georgia. What uh, what is that rut window in the in different part of Georgia there where he might be hunting? I believe as you get up into the mountains of Georgia, it's it's still more of a November, a typical November rut. Gotcha. Um, so it's you know as you get you get down into uh, Southwest Georgia, we get into a little bit of a December rut that is part of the whole Alabama uh, fruit basket that mm-hmm. we can talk about. You know, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana gets into that really kind of big mystery area um, <laughs> where it's a whole different ball game of rut timing. But um, for the most part, Georgia's November and uh, late October on the coast. Uh-huh. All right. Well, let's let's pick some of that fruit. So what is the deal with those, you know, kind of, you might call them the central coastal states? You know, why is it such a, uh, a mixed bag or, you know, fruit basket, I guess is what you call <laughs> it, of, of rutting yeah. dates? Like Alabama, why, why is it so late like that? Yeah, well, Alabama's famous for having, um, you know, and it's got some pockets that are, are November, but, uh, and interestingly, just recently, Alabama uh, rolled out uh, a new state, the state agency rolled out a new rut map that you can Google and go to the, the Alabama, uh, Outdoor Alabama website and find it. Uh, again, based on biological data like we talked about, but, and, and look at that map, it really is just, you know, looks like the piebald deer. It's um, all, all over the place, and it's got some November in there, but then you've got a large area that's into uh, December and January and even early February mm. uh, in some pockets down in, I believe it's southwest Alabama, that you get into the January-February stuff. Um, and even recently, a couple of years ago here, the state uh, adjusted their hunting regulations in that area to push the season later into February to allow deer hunters to continue hunting the rut. Uh, so yeah, it's all over the place. Mississippi's the same way. They tend to have later, you know, into January and even, uh, some areas, Feb- uh, February in Mississippi and Louisiana as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason Sumners, who's now the deer project leader in Missouri for the state agency there, he, uh, did his graduate work at Mississippi state university. And he looked at this and, uh, I interviewed Jason and, and did some writing about what he learned. He looked at this very question. Why is the rut like that in those states? And he looked at it on the, at the genetic level with some DNA information. And um, what he found, what they did is an interesting way he did this study. He went to some areas where on a map, it looked like you had some deer populations very close to, to each other, in some cases within like 30 miles of each other, with wildly different rut peaks. And he took genetic samples from both populations in several areas around Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana too, I think even over in Texas. Um, and, and then he compared the genetics of those two sets of deer populations that were close to each other geographically, but far apart in the breeding dates. And what he found was he had to get down to the level of genetic, and this is, can get, genetics is always, it gets confusing for me, but when you start talking about DNA, because it's co- very complex science. Mm-hmm. But we have deer have what's called mitochondrial DNA, and mm-hmm. that is passed along only by the doe. That's the important thing to know. There are genetic aspects of deer that are passed only by the doe. And what they found was the genetics of these populations were very similar on the doe side of the equation and very different on the buck side of the equation. In other words, these populations were sharing, the bucks were moving back into and sharing genetics, but the does were not. And we know that's how does function. We know that um, 
does don't move a lot. They mm-hmm. generally live in the range where they were born. Bucks mm-hmm. are the opposite. Bucks disperse as yearlings and go to other areas from where they were born. Mm-hmm. So any genetics that are carried only by the doe are going to tend to move very slowly about across the landscape, if at all. And so what, what they said this suggests is that these breeding dates come from restocking. They come from the days where these states went to other areas, uh, both in the U.S. and even in Mexico, to get deer to restock populations. And apparently, the timing trigger for breeding is carried by the doe. Hmm. So years later, decades later, these populations that came from other areas came with a different trigger for when they should breed, and they have persisted in these areas because of the fact that bucks don't carry them around when Mm -hmm. they move. Hmm. So that's how you can end up with a situation like Georgia, where we have a November rut, and then I can load up and drive across the state line from one county to another and hunt a January rut, literally. <laughs> wow, um, that's cool. And a, and a lot of Georgia deer hunters do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, hunt Georgia's rut, and then things die off in Georgia and go cold, and the scrapes are, are empty, and you load up and head to Alabama, buy your non-resident license, and the rut's just kicking off. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that pretty much explains it. It, it comes from restocking. And, yeah. you know, the thing is they, they really can't trace back and say, well, this February rut comes from deer came from Mexico. Because here's the problem. when you The trigger is based on day length. Mm-hmm. And when you move a deer to a different latitude, the day length that triggers their rut is on a different date in the calendar. Mm-hmm. Day length varies across the calendar, north to south. You know, the day length here in Georgia is going to be different than it is in Minnesota today or Michigan because of the difference in latitude. So the trigger is now at a different time. So these does are triggered to breed at a different time in the calendar. And the, the key here is that in the south, that persists because those fawns are not going to be killed by a hard winter. So the genetics stay. Mm -hmm. If you took... If you, you know, in the north, if deer were restocked that triggered on a, a different, you know, late date in the calendar, those fawns are not going to survive the following winter because they're not going to be born on time. They're yes. not going to be born early enough. And so those genetics are not going to persist. Mm-hmm. The only reason that has all stuck around in the south is because the deer can get away with it. Yeah. So that all makes very good sense to me, and I agree with all <laughs> of it. And, and it makes, you know, it, 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 I can see it happening but the one thing that I kind of get hung up on is, um, like you said, you know, estrous cycle is triggered by length of day. Well, if you have does that are being triggered in February, which is, just say, assume 45 days from the winter solstice, why would it not also trigger 45 days pre-winter solstice? You follow me? Um, no. Okay, so <laughs> winter, December 21st, 22nd is the shortest day of the year. Uh, so, or around those times, depending on which year. And that's. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I and, see what you're saying. That there's another day in the year that's probably a similar, similar day. Like yes, that. exactly. So, uh, you know, February 15th, say that a dose triggered then, then there probably is a day in early November that also has the same amount of daylight. Why is she not triggered for that November? period of daylight as opposed to the february period of daylight get back to me when you find out (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) i'd like to know myself (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, All right. Uh, well, I guess we'll uh, we'll find the real expert for that one, Lindsay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, just man. kidding, man. Is your boy Chuck Sykes still slocking deer with pellet gun down there in Alabama? <laughs> I'm sure he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing that just stuck with me during, during the convention a couple of years ago, man. Uh, yeah. yep. So, so Alabama's kind of built. Uh, the maps that I've seen is kind of like almost like a north and south thing. Um, is is the when is that north rut? I'm trying to picture the map. I just was studying it yesterday because it just they just released it recently, and I I, I want to say it is kind of a December. That's what I thought too. Um, you know, December mixed into kind of January, and then it sort of blends as you move south down into January, February. Gotcha. But again, looking at the map, you got little pockets, just like you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you got little pockets that they're finding where, you know, literally on the county level, where one county might be uh, a little bit earlier and another a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, you know, that's how, now that we know that this trigger for the timing is carried by the doe, and that those move slowly across the landscape, that's how you can have a little pocket like that on the county level that persists and does not sort of be washed away by genetic flow across the land because the bucks generally are the cause of genetic flow. Uh-huh. And they're not, they're not carrying the DNA that, that's the, the timing. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's tough to generalize anywhere in any state, mm-hmm. um, particularly like Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, where you get this intergrade of different timings. These maps that the state agencies are produced uh, are producing are extremely useful. You know, go if, if you uh, folks that are listening, if you hunt in Alabama, make sure you find that map on Outdoor Alabama's website. Mm-hmm. Florida FWC has got their map. Georgia, had, uh, uh, the Wildlife Resources Division in Georgia, has produced a a rut map for for dates in Georgia. Um, I believe Louisiana has one. I'm not sure about these other states, but they probably do as well. So visit your state agency's website and see if they don't have a map to rut timing based on this biological data. Because sometimes at a very fine scale, um, you know, you can plan your hunting and, and on the calendar and, and use that information to decide when you're going to go. Like I said, literally, and, and I've done it before. Years ago, my dad had access to a, a lease uh, just across the state line in Russell County, Alabama. And we'd hunt the Georgia rut. Uh, and then when that was over, after Christmas, load up and go to Russell County, Alabama in, Alabama in January and watch bucks fighting and chasing does again. And it really was uh, pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So Louisiana kind of is similar to Mississippi, I guess. Um, is there anything odd about it uh, or different than some of the states we've mentioned? Not that I recall. It's, it's just kind of like that that. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama area where you get this swirl um, uh-huh. that kind of runs from, you know, a little bit of November, but then December and January, mostly across most of the state. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, then it flows into Texas where you guys have got a lot of December uh, rut peaks. I think uh-huh. on the uh, the Gulf Coast, you've got kind of a, an October like we talked about, but then big chunks of East Texas and South Texas are December. Is that right? Uh, South Texas, especially, yeah, yeah, it's like a it's like a mid December uh, rut. Everybody goes down to the brush country to hunt December fifteenth. You know, um, that's kind of what they do here in in East Texas. Uh, at least where we where we've hunted in the last several years, we've seen. Um, you know, and this is this is kind of this is something I wanted to ask you about and talk to you about. Uh, we've seen our trail cameras. 
have the most buck movement in mid to late November, uh, somewhere around the 14th to the you know 23rd, 24th, something like that. Now, you know, if somebody was doing their own research via trail cameras and that kind of thing, and trying to trying to hone in on the heart of the rut. Um, you know, that seems like those would be good days to be in the woods because there's just tons of buck movement. But does that mean that is when the does are getting bred or the most does are getting bred or when, you know, can you assume that that would be happening according to trail cameras? Yeah, what I would say about that is, and I can't promise you that's, that, that you can make that correlation where you are in Texas, but I know that here in Georgia, uh, the University of Georgia, uh, a student named Michael Biggerstaff, this has been a year or two ago, um, was doing um, a big trail camera study. This was part of a bigger University of Georgia study looking at uh, trail camera survey methods without using bait. And what they were doing was putting trail cameras, uh, spreading them out uh, systematically across the landscape on trails, on travel patterns of deer. In other words, they were trying to have an unbiased look at deer movements. If you put a camera on a scrape, that's biased because what's coming to a scrape mostly? Bucks. Bucks, yeah. Bucks, right. So that's by, it's not showing you a, a cross-section of the population. And you don't, you, know, you don't want to use feed and food sources and things like that. So they were putting them on trails simply to try to literally measure um, deer demographics. And what Michael found was that the vast majority, first of all, of all the buck pictures he got, um, he got like 60% of all of his buck pictures in one month of the year, and that was November. So clearly buck movement, as we've always known, peaks during the peak of breeding. Mm. Then he went and got local breeding data on that deer population, which they had collected, looking at peak breeding dates. And guess what? It corresponded perfectly. Mm. The number of adult buck pictures on his trail camera uh, were in perfect alignment with breeding dates, which just makes sense that when does are in estrus, the bucks are going to be moving to find them. Mm -hmm. And so what he said out of that was, you know, you don't need any biological data locally. If you run your trail cameras on, you know, enough cameras out there uh, in areas where you are monitoring buck movement, um, when you see a spike in buck movement, you can assume that's a spike in does coming into estrus. That's when your breeding's happening. So based on what he found in Georgia, Tyler, I'd say the answer is yes. Yeah. Or you the, could what you're seeing there, the peak of buck movement you're seeing um, is indicating to you when the peak of breeding is. Now, if you were putting those cameras on scrapes, that's different because we know that scrape activity tends to happen a little bit ahead of mm -hmm. peak breeding. Right. Um, that's more of a let's that's more of a tinder for deer. You know, they're they're meeting each other. Who are you? Who are you know? <laughs> Did you just oh. reference Tinder, the dating app? That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My know. man, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to they're going to the scrape and swiping left or swiping that's right. right. You know? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So you know they haven't done the hookup yet. That's right. coming. Yeah. But the scrape. So scrape activity and rub activity, especially, tends to peak a little bit early. So if your cameras are on that. That's not necessarily going to show you a peak of breeding. If you've got cameras that are on trails, though, just looking at general deer movements um, and you start seeing more bucks showing up, you can assume, okay, the breeding is happening. Mm -hmm. So something I've noticed here in East Texas, um, and you probably know a little bit something about the regulation stuff, but over the past 15 years, our area of Texas has really um, 
changed a lot when it comes to hunting regulations. And I'm not going to say it's perfect, but I think it is for the better in, in, in most senses to where we went from being a uh, one buck, no doe, uh, no doe harvest at all area to now there's a decent number of does being harvested and we have an antler restriction, which is a little controversial, but we have at least seen an uptick of mature deer being taken. And with that, I think there's going to be probably a more uh, balanced age structure and a more balanced buck-to-doe ratio with the doe harvest. Now, all that being said, it seemed to me over my you know 15 years of hunting or so in this area of Texas that uh, there used to be a very uh, expanded, you know, uh, wide bell curve of a rut and rut activity to where you'd have bucks chasing in October and you'd still see some pretty good action in late December and there never was a big spike. But now it seems that um, that is starting to condense some. That's just my general observation. Do you feel like that my observation is, is something that could be possible or do you think it's just one of those things where you, I'm just you know deceived by what I see? It's absolutely possible. Okay. Um, and that's that's a that's a known thing that when you tighten up the buck to doe ratio, what happens is, um, you know, you know that if if a doe comes into estrus and she does not get bred, she's going to cycle again, twenty something to thirty days later. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she'll do it a third time if she has to to try to get bred. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when You've got a, a buck to doe ratio that's you know two or maybe three to one bucks uh, does to bucks. Then um, not all of your does are going to be bred on that first estrus cycle. The bucks just can't get around all of them. There's not enough to do that, and so a lot more does are coming in a second time and sometimes even a third time, um, and that's not good. It's not good for the population because then you're ending up with more fawns being late born, and those fawns are getting a late start the following year they are going to be smaller in body size at the outset and generally smaller in antler size throughout their life so Mm -hmm. that's not a good thing so tightening up your sex ratio when you move toward a a one-to-one uh buck to doe ratio and and it's never going to be perfect but the closer you get to balance uh the fewer does that will not be bred if any on their first estrus cycle and that's just naturally going to tighten up the, the rut um your, your breeding, but also your breeding competition is going to be more intense. Um, you know, with more bucks out there to compete against, you know, for, for breeding rights, you get more fighting, you get more chasing, you get more scrape and rub activity. Um, things like rattling and grunting work better. So uh, all of those factors come are benefits of tightening up that buck-to-doe ratio. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. You would see a more intensive rut as a result of that. Mm-hmm. I okay. feel like I've seen that some, and, you know, in, in recent years, like maybe it took a few years for it to actually kind of balance, which makes sense, you know, but I just feel like, and maybe it's just because I'm more of an observer than I, and I used to be. I don't know. But um, with that, how, how long in a doe's estrus cycle is she actually uh, receptive? Is it a 10-day window, a three-day window, or what is that there? Let me know when you get find the answer to that. <laughs> Dude, I don't mean to stump you all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I forget. Well, I just don't. I don't like to quote 
um, stats when I'm really not sure. Sure. Um, it's a very short time. Yeah. I applaud you days. for that. Most people like it's, me just make stuff up, so it's <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not. It's not days. Yeah. It, it maybe a day to two days or something like that. I, I'm and I'm speculating here. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not 100 sure. I'd need to go to a biologist and ask that question. And um, there's not one on this call. So, well, I don't know. Grossman. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just realized Brian Grossman is sitting here next to me driving. Dang it. Uh, <laughs> when, a doe, when a doe comes into estrus, how long, if she's not bred, how long before she goes out of estrus again? Always, or 24 to 48 hours. He's saying 24 to 48 hours. Gotcha. So, the... Um, the old adage, especially in southern deer hunters, is, man, it's cold. The rut's going to be going on, right? So yeah. th- that just cannot be the case. If she's only there for 24 to 48 hours, um, the cooler, the cold weather, cold fronts might increase some deer movement, but you're not actually going to have any estrus cycles that are, are by no means triggered by that weather or have, like... If there was a 10-day window and the cold front happened within that 10-day window of that doe being able to be bred, then you could I would understand it. But since it's such a short time period, pretty much cold fronts have nothing to do with when a doe is going to get bred. Absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, again, it goes back to why do deer breed when they breed? It's all about fawn survival. Mm-hmm. That's got nothing to do with, with weather fluctuations in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is triggered by day length to assure that it happens along the same time period every year. And we know in any given location, yes, Alabama has some weird dates. Every you know, It's different in different locations. But in a given place, every year it's going to be about the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, if a doe is going to come into estrus on November 10th, I don't care if it's a heat wave. She's still coming into estrus. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Bugs are still going to be chasing her and trying to breed her. I don't care what the weather's doing. I don't care if it's 30-mile-an-hour winds for a week. Um, <laughs> you know, gotcha. when she's in estrus, it's happening, and they're going to do it. And, and that's why, you know, I hear a lot of hunters say, oh, man, we didn't have a rut this year. Um, or, man, the rut, you know, trickled out and spread out over all this time or whatever. No, it happened the same time. You know, you might think you didn't observe much rut activity, but guess what? The deer got, they took care of business. They mm-hmm. got it done. There's yeah. still fawns the next year. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So uh, I kind of want to go back real quick um, just to make a point, kind of emphasize this for the, the listener that might be thinking about uh, making a trip south to hunt right now. And we were talking about the trail camera data being something that you can refer to to know when the peak uh, estrus days are, uh, but I, but I, and the way I'm understanding what you're saying is that you could also, as a traveling out-of-state hunter, uh, look up biological studies that show when the actual peak breeding dates are and assume that that's also the heaviest rut action overall and plan a trip that way, right? Yes, correct. And then you can even, if you hunt one place one year, and, and suspect that you're you're witnessing a lot of rut activity, guess what? The same date next year is probably going to be the time to be there. Uh-huh. So, again, going back to that, what I said about them being consistent year to year in a given location, the breeding dates pretty much don't change. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, most states do collect that data. They may or may not make it easily available on their website. A lot do, as I've said, but at least give it a shot. Go, or you know, get on the phone and call uh, a, a biologist with that state agency. 
Um, that's what they're there for and ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and if maybe they don't have the data available, but you know, a WMA manager or a regional biologist is probably going to have a good sense for when the rut occurs on the areas that they're responsible for. Call them up, talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, if the agency does not have a map on their website for you, but yes, you definitely can plan on that. Um, and if you go on the hunt and see a bunch of rut activity again, next year, same time, same date. Gotcha. So, uh, Casey kind of, I think, posed this question to me earlier before we got on the phone, and and so I'm going to jack it here. It probably but... didn't make any sense. He's probably <laughs> doing a better job than me. <laughs> Hopefully this one won't stump you. Uh, so the, the, there are some early ruts, October obviously being, you know, uh, fairly early. But, I mean, you've got in some areas and states, you've got August and September as being pretty heavy rut action like Florida. Uh, yeah. Can you – can you expect to go on a hunt during that time period for deer that are rutting and that they would be acting like deer do in the, in November and you hunt them similarly? Yes. So Um, like, and, and many of the States, Florida has some customized hunting seasons for those areas to help hunters hunt. And yeah, so there's people out hunting in, in, uh, you know, summer in Florida. Um, just like I said, Alabama adjusting their dates backwards to help hunters, hunt into the early February to be able to hunt the rut. Mm -hmm. And yes, if you went down to, you know, the Everglades of Florida in July and there's a doe in estrus, a buck and a doe are going to behaving, just be behaving just like a buck and a doe would in November in Iowa. Uh Um, You know, he's going to be chasing, he's going to be fighting other bucks that are trying to breed her. It's the same behaviors. Now, you know, it's going to be 105 degrees and you're going to be, you're going to be wearing your Speedo and and cranking your thermocell. Not for tender purposes, right? (laughs) No selfies during that time. That's right. No stand selfies. Chugging ice water. But yes, bugs will be drinking, will be uh, chasing does. Gotcha. Yeah, that's gotcha. when that's when Hank goes and hunts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, rattling, grunting, that kind of thing works. Uh, hunting over scrapes, possibly those kind of things can work for you in August or in February alike. Cor- correct. Now, what I, I think is also going on here that you'll you'll see coming into play, <clears throat> like we talked about, uh, and I believe this goes on in southeast georgia on my family's land the further south you get the less it matters from a survival standpoint when deer breed mm-hmm. um in other words like I said down in central america um there's no hard winter weather and so a fawn that's born at an odd time is not going to die <clears throat> and what that means is those genetics persist and in general the breeding spreads all spreads out wider across the calendar. There are more does coming in early and more does coming in late, even though there's still somewhat of a peak. And I think we see that in Southeast Georgia, where yes, the peak of bucks showing up on camera, for example, um, and the peak of rut activity and breeding is late October, the first week of November. But I have personally pulled fetuses out of late season doe harvest and measured them and found September breeding uh, dates. Um, So Hmm. there's, there's some does that are starting early in September. uh, And there, and there are also some does that are coming in late uh, at the farm in December. Um, I was actually down at the farm um, just after Christmas on the 27th, I believe it was that I saw this. And yeah, the morning of the 27th and saw 
a doe come through chased by uh, three bucks. Mm. Um, they were all young bucks. And I think that the doe, she was so small that what I suspect is that she was a fawn that had come in estrus. So that could be what we were talking about earlier, where a fawn comes in for her mm-hmm. first estrus late if she comes in at all. But still, I think that in South Georgia, the breeding dates spread out wider across the calendar. And I would suspect that's also true in South Florida. Because, again, you don't get this survival pressure extinguishing genetics of does that breed late or breed early. Um, so if that's going on, then what that probably means is fewer does coming into estrus during the peak, which might mean that breeding activity, chasing, fighting, rattling, grunting, all of that is maybe less intense than you might think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not going to be like, in the in the Midwest and the Northeast, where that that peak window is very narrow, and you really get that intense rut activity over a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So earlier you were talking about you know the reintroduction of of whitetails and that having a, a big effect locally or localized effect. Let me say it that way of you know rut dates because of the does. Do you feel like there are other pockets like that out there that have not been like uh, discovered or whatever you want to say. Like for instance, here in East Texas, uh, there were some restocking efforts in the seventies and eighties. Do you feel like there's also a possibility that we have those kind of pockets in certain counties that just have not been identified yet? Maybe on a micro scale like that, it's possible. But I think that at this point, you know, most of the state agencies and and researchers have, have documented a lot of that and found it. Um, Mm. you know, um, several years back when Jason Sumners did his work, he also based that off other studies. And there were some studies done by uh, Dwayne Diefenbach up in Pennsylvania and some in Florida looking at uh, all of the biological data they could gather around the nation, anywhere it had ever been gathered by agencies uh, and mapping that out and seeing what they found. Mm-hmm. And so both at the national level, but also at the state level by state agency biologies, biologists, They've been looking at this for some time, and and I, I would say it's probably unlikely there's a pocket of hunters seeing a rut that differs wildly from other areas around them that a scientist or biologist is unaware of. Gotcha. Are there any other odd ruts out there that we haven't hit on? No, I think we've covered it. I mean, you know, Alabama and Florida to me stick out as being – two examples where it really is, you know, Alabama's just kind of this um, swirl of dates that don't seem to make much sense. And Florida, it seems to make a little more sense in that it changes north to south. As you go from the panhandle down toward the Keys, it goes from, uh, you know, late to early. But it is just, those two states, man, it's just all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of Alabama hunters that I know talk about hunting in October when their, you know, bow season comes in and seeing spotted fawns walking around. And that's just normal. That's normal in Alabama. <laughs> so, um, it's, uh, yeah, those are probably the two oddest examples that I know of. Yeah. Cool. So Lindsay, let's have a scenario here. All right. The QDMA. He's scared. <laughs> no, he's like, oh, Casey and his dumb questions. The QDMA for the 2020 year says Lindsay for the last quarter your whole job is to hunt October November December and follow the rut 
All right, that's what you get to do, and we're going to pay. January. We're going to pay you double and January. All right, and there and so your job is going to be to hit the rut in as many places as you can. Now, let's just say you know per month. Uh, you want to hit an October rut, and then pick your Midwest state for your standard rut, and then a December and a January. What is that hunting calendar going to look for you? Where are you going? Well, we start off at in coastal Georgia. You know, the land that I know in October, mm-hmm. um, I, I might even try to get on some of those uh, WMAs or wildlife refuges on the Georgia coast. We've got a lot of those on the islands um, where it's an early, you know, mid to late October rut. Come inland onto the mainland for late October and then just gradually move my way up into the Piedmont as November comes on. And I, I mean, it almost is kind of a an arc where you go up into middle Georgia, and then I could cross the state line into Alabama in, in January and hunt my way down toward that southwest corner where it's February. Um, so, I mean, is that answering your question? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I think so. So you're not going to jump around too much. You're just going to start in southeast Georgia and just kind of make a razoo up north and come back down, right? Use the residency. That's right. I don't have to, geographically, I don't have to travel very far to hunt multiple months of the calendar. Yeah, I think cool. it would be, you know, I'd find it fun to go down to, to Florida one day and try to get in on some of that August, September rut hunting just for the heck of it to say I've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm from Southeast Georgia. I'm used to mosquitoes and warm weather. That's fine. <laughs> I, I can handle that. So no problem there. Just say I've done it. And then um, I think it'd be fun to work my way over to Alabama and, and say that I'd watched, you know, bucks chase does in February. Um, you know, for us here in the southeast, we don't have to go far to see those kind of extremes. Most of the country, once you get, you know, north of Tennessee and in uh, the middle of the country and north of that, most of the country is all in November uh, with very little variation. Um so, yeah, for that question, just pick your favorite state and go hunt it in November. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Well, we appreciate your time, Lindsay. I can't thank you enough for being flexible. I know you guys are got a busy week headed to ATA. Um, I know last year, you know, you guys at the QDMA were pretty much the only people we felt comfortable hanging around uh and so hopefully we weren't like a, a fifth wheel or a burden or anything doing that but uh, i hate to think i hate to think what that says about y'all <laughs> <laughs> we are not uh we are not tender type of guys you know what i mean uh, so <laughs> but uh we appreciate your friendship man and, and your knowledge um, what's the best way for people to discover all the information you guys have compiled at the qdma just qdma.com come check us out there's a ton of information there uh, that we make available free to all deer hunters. That's our mission is education. Um, but do check out, you know, what we do, the, the mission side of what QDMA does, whether it's, you know, recruiting adult hunters through our field to fork program, um, advocating for wise policy and legislation for deer, whether it's, you know, managing CWD um, and, you know, fighting for things like Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania, which we were uh, worked on pretty hard and which did pass. Um, so we're, a, we're an advocate for deer and deer hunters. Um, it's not just all about learning the science of it, though, you know, that's the fun part for us. Mm-hmm. So take a look at it and, and remember that we're a nonprofit organization and that we work off of our members' support. It makes it possible for us to do what we do and, and consider joining. Um, we'd appreciate it, appreciate the support, but you certainly will learn a lot from us 
along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know awesome. that's that's for sure, man. I've learned a, a ton from you through the years, and uh, I'm sorry for some really stupid questions I asked today. I'm sure I didn't formulate them well, <laughs> but I do I do really respect everything that you have to say uh-huh. and just how you carry yourself, man. Uh, that's uh, something that I've learned a lot about the QDMA over the past few years is that um, there are some high quality individuals over at. at uh, at the Quality Deer Management Association, and uh, I can't uh, can't tell you how much we value uh, y'all's knowledge and friendship, man. Well, hey, right back at y'all. We enjoy getting to know you guys, and and hanging out last year at ATA was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed that. I'm sorry y'all won't be here this year, uh, yeah. and we'll we'll miss that. But no, um, you know, we have a lot of fun with you guys. Y'all have come to know us just as deer hunters and deer geeks, like any others, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's been a good time getting to know you. Well, we appreciate your time, Lindsay, and, and uh, we'll send people. There's a link below, so we're going to send people to the QDMA and uh, let them look around and, and find out more about you guys. So y'all be safe heading to ATA. Thank you, Tyler. Good to talk to you. Take care, Casey. <laughs> All right. See you, brother. See you. Man, you can always rely on Lindsay for some good laughs, you know what I mean? Dude, we laugh a lot whenever we're on the podcast, or really anytime we're with the QDMA guys. Uh, they just have got a really quality group of folks over there who yep. just love life, like some good old Southern football, and <laughs> like to talk about deer. That's you know? right, man. That's uh, that's that's who I hang out with usually, man. <laughs> so uh, glad we could get some information from him. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Like to me, I see a lot of opportunity, man, uh, for late season stuff. And we used to have. Um, so my my the Jones side of my family uh, settled from North Carolina. They settled in Arkansas, uh, the Hope area, and we used to have uh, property there that's been in the family since they settled. Uh, the family mm-hmm. uh, we my family had originally donated uh, like a little corner section near the road these this county road and farm to market um, for cemetery. They donated to the church that was there. Uh, and in Patmos, which is a little bit town that really doesn't exist anymore, I think, um, there in Arkansas. And um, so, like, there are headstones in that cemetery that are, like, from the 1870s and stuff. There That's are cool. some that are just rocks. Yeah. Like, there's nothing on them. That's cool. And so that was land that was donated. Um, unfortunately, um, when my dad's uncle died, um, my dad had has one sibling, and then my dad's uncle had two kids. So, um, the four of them is who the property went to and nobody wanted to keep it, but my dad and my dad couldn't afford to buy everybody out. And so we had to sell the property and, uh, my dad was really upset about it. Yeah. Um, really, really crushed about it. You he told me a story about a white Oak tree on that property. Oh man. Yeah. It was, dude, the property's awesome, man. Like there was never hardly that many deer on it. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess the reason I'm telling the story real quick before I go into that is because there's a February season in Arkansas. Mm. It goes into like late February for archery. And so we always wanted to hunt up there late. We never really did hunt that late up there. But in October, there was uh, like where we had a a little mobile home set up up there. And you was on top of this hill in a cattle pasture. And you just look down and the hill drops off real steep. There's a pond and like a bunch of pines down there on the backside of the pond. And there's some white oaks on the property as well, like legit ones. And there was one big white oak on the edge of this field down the hill. And uh, the deer would always hang around it, you know. In October, um, the only deer I ever saw killed off of it was my dad's buddy Dan, who he played football with in college. Um, 
was hunting that white oak he just set up a tree stand there and he's not really a deer hunter you know Mm -hmm. um and he killed a a small buck there um under that white oak tree coming to eat acorns and i always wanted to shoot a deer there and i actually never shot a deer on that property so i know but you know it's just it was not great deer hunting so Mm -hmm. driving to two hours to go hunt out of state and pay the you know 400 bucks to get the tag or whatever it is it's pretty expensive in arkansas so just never uh never really uh kind of had the time or money to uh do that so mm-hmm. yeah anyway um th- with that being said as well like february january late season is something i've always wanted to do i just never have really done it that much hunted january a little bit in uh, oklahoma back in the day and um i'm hoping that we can can get us another hunt in this year next year in january february because be fun man because it is kind of a dead time like there's not a ton of great fishing like we were talking about earlier there's not a ton of great fishing going on right now uh there's a chance to catch a real big fish for sure but Mm -hmm. like you could go out and pitch a jig all day and not catch anything so um you know it's kind of a dead period my dad likes to say it's the time of time of year you play tackle box (laughs) <laughs> or you just like you just get in your boat and you you look at your tackle box and all your ba- all your baits and everything. Yeah. You're like you're like mm, I can't wait to catch one on that right there. <laughs> and then you put it back in its tray and you get another one out. It's the like, same equivalent as like people getting their bows out in, in August and shooting a lot. You yep. know, like ah, I can't wait. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I'm I'm excited about uh, the newfound knowledge that I I had talking to Lindsay. Man, there's some cool stuff. Um, you know, and really one of the biggest answers for me that helps me in planning trips and stuff is, um, you know, being able to look at peak breeding dates as being also uh, correlated with peak movement like mm-hmm. buck movement you know so that helps you when you're planning out a state trip uh trip big time i think when you're looking at ruts and stuff and i mean obviously if you're just a guy that does a rut rutcation or whatever in november in the midwest you can do the same thing there with knowing that you know peak peak uh conception dates are you know around november 14th or whatever so be there you know right before and right after maybe yeah so anyway Lots of cool, cool things. Uh, I like podcasts where we talk uh, kind of biological type of stuff about mm-hmm. deer because that really helps us to uh, know the quarry better and make better decisions uh, when we're out in the woods, I think. So now, who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. We may do some fishing podcasts. So if you're, you know, I noticed this, we released that duck hunting video and, uh, we don't have many duck hunters. I don't think they listen to this podcast because I did release it at a at a bad time. I think during the holidays, but um, yeah, there's not a lot of people that viewed that as opposed to like some of the deer videos we've been releasing. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe they won't like the fishing, but I do know there's been a few people talking about uh, this and that. I think we had a guy talk about how much he liked our fly fishing videos and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's just what we do, man. And uh, hopefully we'll uh be able to get out and catch some fish this year i ate some i i kind of have vowed to eat more bass i'm not sure about overs (laughs) but this year i'm i'm definitely gonna be cooking some bass up man well i'll tell you what's cool is um around mid-april early april you can go out with a jigging pole and a jig and eat whatever you catch oh yeah bass catfish and crappie like there's time there's days when big bluegill i've never caught a big bluegill that time of year um, but I can, I mean, I'll eat one, don't get me wrong, but there's days where like you'll catch three crappie, one bass and one catfish and that's kind of your ratios, mm-hmm. you know, and that's talking about a good mixed bag. Yeah. Oh man. Dude, uh, we had one day, 
was it in May last year or June where we caught all those bluegills off the bed? We didn't do a very good job of videoing it. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Dude, that was awesome. Man. I think that we were a couple weeks late on that too. Yeah. I think if we were in there a little bit earlier, we could have really ripped some toads. Yeah. We caught some nice ones, mm-hmm. like some that you gut and throw in the fryer. What I've learned about bluegills is that when you get out on the main lake, that's where you find the big daddies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's something to do with the just water temps or shells or what, but mm-hmm. out there in the bigger part of the lake, that's where you get talked to. Man. I can remember, <laughs> I've probably told this story in the podcast before, we used to go out there and catch, we call them brim, but they're not brim, we call it catch bluegills and uh, then throw them at stumps to catch bass. Mm-hmm. And one time my buddy reeled in a bluegill, or I'm sorry, reeled in a bass that had eaten the bluegill he threw out, and he didn't have a hook in the bass. The ba- the bluegill was so big it wedged in the ma- bass's mouth. They and couldn't get it in. out? He, really? He got the bass couldn't get it out. Wow. Yeah. Dude, that's crazy. Reeled it in. I was I had, there to witness this. I had it a happened. similar thing happen at the lodge there one time. Uh, and, and that's main lake, but yeah. there's sometimes uh, if you find it right, you'll find a bed of just slab, just female bluegills on this bed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're just catching like, you know, 0. 0.4 and half pounders on every cast, you know, eight, nine inches. And I would uh, take my four weight when I had that little cheap one. And, and, uh, which I've never had an expensive one, so whatever. Uh, but yeah, I had a, you know, one of my first ones and I, I was catching them, man, good. And, um, I, I get one and like they're a pretty good little fight, you know, and I'm not just going to rip them in. I'm going to let them play for a second, you know, because it's fun. And, uh, all of a sudden, this fish like gets real heavy. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And so it starts like taking line. I'm just like, you know, just like it's going, man. And, uh, it goes out there like probably like 15 yards, maybe 20 yards until it finally kind of like relaxes. And I'm like, what in the world? I, I knew that like a bass or something, you know, I had hooked or something. And so like it just relaxes all of a sudden. I'm like, oh man. So I start stripping it in and I strip it in real fast and I'm not feeling anything and it gets close. And it's my, it's a bluegill that's like, shredded like it's still all intact it's just like scraped down it's both scaled. sides yeah. yeah pretty much and right behind it is like a six pounder oh and i'm like oh and i saw like i set it down real quick and i was like please come back it never did you know and i didn't get a hook in it because i was fishing with a you know a bead head or mm-hmm. whatever so anyway that was a there's been some cool things that happened at the lodge over the years man yeah there's just something about when you live at a lake weird things are going to happen oh yeah man you know yeah when you spend some time on the edge of the water (laughs) like not out in the middle of the water things happen out there but yeah where land meets water man there's some crazy stuff that goes on that's right man snakes and all kinds of stuff alligators yep this guy what's he doing anyway he scared me (laughs) turn around he's probably trying to give us a package yeah yep all right. Well, I guess that's about time to wrap it up then. Uh, appreciate you guys listening. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to YouTube. Check out the uh, Iowa stuff. And remember, this is your element. Living it. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. 
They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. 